Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Today, it's my pleasure to be joined by our guest, Alyssa Merwin, who is the Vice President for the LinkedIn Sales Navigator business in North America. Welcome, Alyssa. Thanks, Jeremy. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's truly an honor. So I always like to try to get to that immediately actionable value by asking our guests, what's their favorite sales or leadership book or other type of resource? Oh, gosh, there's so many. But I'll tell you one that really has just been sort of a backbone of how I've thought about leading sales organizations. And and it's actually really synonymous with a lot of the work that I've been doing the last few years is The Advantage. Patrick Lencioni. Absolutely. So what is it about that book? What did you take away from that book? Well, you know, he talks so much about how to build teams and build trust and how to think about, you know, when you're, especially when you're in a leadership role, how to think about who your team is. And I think so many of the the things that he outlines are practices and tactics that as leaders, we can adopt within our teams to create psychological safety in our teams, to get us rallied around and focused on the, the right behaviors and build commitment and shared vision. And, and those are just such critical components of building a high-performing team. And so they, they're all things that I've incorporated into how I lead teams over the last few years. I actually love one of the turns of phrase you use there, which is who your team is. One of the interview questions I pretty much always ask when I'm hiring new leaders, first-line manager or above, is I ask them, what's your definition of your team? The answer I'm looking for, right, is it's not just the people who work for you, right? It's it's your team is your peers. It's the overall company. It's your stakeholders, right? So it's I found that people who are hyper-focused on just the people who work for them sort of overly guard and protect those people in a ways that are even detrimental to them. We all have to just be really conscious of where we're operating. So both in terms of the altitude and also the peer group and, and the individuals that we're connecting with, I, I found that I was getting some feedback that I was great at building high-performing teams and really investing in in building my organization, but I was not as much of an interdependent leader. And so I was getting feedback that I needed to be thinking across, working with my counterparts in other parts of the world or other parts of the business to do a better job of making sure that we were collaborating and finding opportunities to work together and, and share ideas and best practices. And that was a really important moment in the way that I started to think about who my team is and that, you know, leading the individuals that report to you versus working with your peers and those that that are above you. And so that part really resonated with me when I read it in the book. I always like to push when I hear the what and the why. What was the how? What did did you change in the way that you did that actually allowed you to be successful in making that change? Let me start with it's a journey. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we have ingrained behaviors and ways of working together norms that, you know, we we get used to. And so it hasn't been an overnight switch, but I have tried to be much more cognizant of both bringing my peers along and reaching out to get their input on, on things that I'm doing. Just trying to be more conscious of doing that upfront and starting from a place of interdependence as opposed to starting from a place of independence. Yeah. Oh my goodness. You just took me back to one of my greatest lessons. I was having an incredible struggle with a peer of mine. He was actually my boss. And then I got promoted to be his peer. And he was hands down one of the best managers I ever had. I don't even want to call him a manager, leader, developer. And then once he was my peer, I was having this incredible friction. So I asked our mutual boss, 
for advice on on what to do and he gave me that exact advice he said like Jeremy, your problem is that you're you're trying to bring the solution to other people mm-hmm. and not putting them on the bus early enough, especially with that peer of mine. Once he was a co-creator, then obviously things began to work out much better. So I, I think that's a huge lesson. That's an area that I probably get a lot of feedback on because I like to move quickly. And so it's less about wanting to do it all myself, but when you feel like you know where you need to go and you, you want to just go execute, you can really overlook those really critical steps of bringing people along. And, and so I, I spend a lot of time with my team on this, the difference between being directive. You might, again, be very clear about what needs to happen and how to do it. But being directive versus co-creating with your team gets you such wildly different outcomes. And so I am I'm trying to do more of that myself of let's co-create and all be part of the process. And it might take us a little bit longer, but we're likely going to be a lot more successful in, in the long run than if uh, you know I or we just come in with, this is what we need to go do and let's, let's go get it done. Again, work in progress, but I think such an important leadership lesson. I think another lesson in there is that co-creation does not mean creation by consensus. Co-creation means that you as a leader or a decision maker apply a consultative leadership style, seeking input from others, but ultimately making the decisions. Absolutely. We've got to be the, the person that moves things along. And, and you know, sometimes we're going to have a perspective and create space for everyone's input, but ultimately you're likely still going to be, need to be the one to make the decision and move forward. I have one more question for you that I'd love to ask our guests. What is the first thing you ever remember selling? Oh gosh, you're taking me way back. <laughs> I grew up in a, in a really small beach town called St. Augustine in Northeast Florida on the Atlantic coast. And Every year there was a craft fair downtown. And when I was, gosh, I don't know, maybe nine or 10, a girlfriend and I decided to sell greeting cards that we created using our uh, fingerprints. And then we turned those little fingerprints into animals and all sorts of fun little cards. And we called them pinky prints. You had branded them. Wow, that's that's <laughs> clever at nine years old. We, we had branding. We had great packaging. It was really uh, a really fun experience. And we did that a couple of times. And it was probably, I guess it was my real you know, first exposure to being a salesperson. The, the challenges and the rewards that come with it. That's amazing. I love the fingerprint greeting cards. Uh, that's uh, picky prints. I got to remember that one. <laughs> well, well, excellent. So what I, what I would love to transition into is understanding your perspective on how the sales landscape is, is changing and what people need to do to react to that. And I find one of the best ways to do that is to walk through your own career progression. And in each one of those steps, what did you notice and how did things change? Perhaps it's things that stopped working or things that started working and that you learned along the way. So, um, you started out, looks like in you know the early 2000s as a fresh, young sales associate after graduating with a degree in political science. What was that transition like? Probably like a lot of us who are in sales today, I, I stumbled into it not really knowing what I was getting myself into, uh, but turned out to be the best thing that ever happened. And I started out, I, I thought I was going to a consulting firm, which I, I you know I was, because CB does best practices research and some consulting-ish services. And the entry-level job was a BDR role, a sales dev role. And so I found myself in that as my very first job out of college. You know, growing up, I didn't think I was a very competitive person because I played, I played tennis rather competitively for most of my childhood and then through, through high school. And I loved the sport and I loved the game, but I did not actually like playing singles. I liked playing doubles. I hated playing singles because I was actually quite a good player, but I, I kept 
getting into my own head. And so I'd be, you know, up, you know, five zero in the second set about to win the match and then get in my head and throw the whole thing, not on purpose, of course, <laughs> but, but I would just psych myself out. And I realized, you know, I think I don't like the zero sum outcome that one person wins and one person loses. And I guess maybe subconsciously, I, I would have rather been the loser than the, than beating someone. And so I, I, I actually don't think I would have thought sales would have been good for me. But what I realized in that first role is that sales is not a zero sum game at all. In fact, we can all be successful and we can help each other and we can all benefit. And I absolutely loved that and found that it was one of the things that made me fall in love with sales. I think it's so much the the dedication as an individual sport athlete, you know, that you have. And, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, sales, yes, enterprise sales is is a team selling motion, but so much of what you do as a salesperson, especially as you're coming up as a salesperson, you know, is very individual, right? There's that challenger sellers and lone wolves and so on. But so much work in sales really does come down to you winning the deal, right? It even has that language in it. And I would say so much of success in sales comes down to individual dedication and accountability to the inputs that matter. And so if you're not disciplined enough to put in the extra work to make the extra call or whatever that that extra step is, I think that's what really ends up setting people apart more so in, in my opinion than your, your sales skills. It's really the behaviors on the front end that I think dictate the outcomes. And so I can see where that corollary between folks that are in the sports uh, that are more individual, you only have yourself to rely on. And it makes a ton of sense. Yeah. We won't go through, you know, your incredible progression at, at corporate executive board from, from SDR to senior director of sales and account management. But I'd love to hear along that journey, along that nine-year journey, how did you see sales evolving? How did you see sales changing? You know, when I started right out of college, CEB was, uh, you know, I'd say a really well-oiled machine and we had a really strong and clear sales process. And as a BDR, probably like a lot of BDRs around the world, we were smiling and dialing. And so it was all about cold calling. And we were selling a product that, you know, we had to create a need for in a lot of cases. And, you know, prospects weren't necessarily aware of the solution that we were offering. And so it took just an inordinate amount of cold calls to try to get a foot in the door. I don't know that we had a dial minimum per day, but you know we're certainly making probably 100 dials a day and needing to schedule at least 30 live meetings a month for the account executives. So let's call that the face-to-face era. You know when we were cold calling and the currency of a sales executive and the value, a lot of the value was associated with how big a Rolodex was. You know, people today probably don't even know what a Rolodex is, but you know, it was how many people do you have have contact with and access to? And so, you know, that was a really important and big moment for sales. And then companies started to get much more specialized in roles. So you started to see the advent of roles like BDR and SDR, account executives versus those that are focused on renewals and growth. You started to see a lot more companies investing in automation and technology. And so you, you'd see companies that were investing in marketing automation, CRM, and the companies at the beginning of that trend really got ahead of the curve and had some unfair competitive advantages because they were the early adopters of some of that technology. We were able to scale our efforts and become more efficient because of some of these tools. 
today we're at a place where the market's so saturated and in every category, absolutely. Every category and every company is invested in myriad tools, whether it's CRM or automation tools. And the challenge is actually that we're getting inundated with junk. The number of crummy emails that I get, it's actually mind boggling that we're, we're no longer taking the time to personalize and customize the outreach. And so it goes automatically to the, the junk or the spam folder as opposed to actually being you know something that I want to engage with. And so I think we saw that sort of face-to-face era, then we moved to this automation era. And, and we think that we're, we're at this nexus of the next trend or the next phase of, auto, of innovation, which is actually marrying the human component, the relational component, and, and that sort of personalized element with the technology and the companies that figure that out and the reps that figure that out are going to be the ones that succeed. And I think the ones that continue to spam their, their prospects and customers are going to have a really, really tough slog. What do you think of this phrase, personalization at scale? How do you react to that phrase? Well, we use it quite a bit. So I, I think I, my, my take on it is it's, again, marrying the human part of figuring out what this person cares about and how I can connect and relate to them and doing it in an efficient way. And I think it's a really important activity to be able to do well. I mean, if you just look at response rates, email click-through rates, I think around 1%, and I think that's probably even generous. Cold calling is abysmal in terms of the the effectiveness and our ability to connect with people just by picking up the phone and, and lobbing a call with no context. And I think that if we can spend a little bit of energy up front, getting to know our buyer, creating something that's compelling and causes them to take notice and to engage, that can make all the difference in a great outcome and never getting a foot in the door. Yeah. And I, I would assume personalization at scale does not mean just dropping in a dynamic field that says, I know you're an X fill in the blank role at Y fill in the blank company. Yes. Those are the emails when I refer to the crummy emails. So anything that's a mail merge, you know, if that's an automatic disqualifier for me, those are the, the emails I get more often than not, which is dear Alyssa, and then it's some you know blurb about something that has nothing to do with me and nothing that shows that you've done any research about who I am and what I care about. And that, I think, is, is a travesty for, for the sales profession and I think something that we all have to get much more thoughtful about. You talked about two things that are the hallmark of superior engagement, right? One is that the engagement shows that they know you, right, to know the buyer. And then the second thing is that there's something in there that provides compelling value. Let, let's separate those two things. As you coach your team and or as you get people who are trying to engage you, what is it that you teach them or look for that shows that they know you? I mean, there are so many platforms today to be able to learn more about our buyers and our prospects. You know, of course, LinkedIn, free LinkedIn is is a great platform. And then, of course, there are, there are many other ways to get access to this information. But you know, something as simple as figuring out what have I typically posted on or written articles about priorities that we're focused on. You know, again, if you're a public company, that certainly makes it easier. We see just incredible differences in people's interest in connecting or accepting in-mails when there are things as simple as uh, maybe having attended the same college or having shared connections in common. One of the things I really advise my team to do when we spend a lot of energy on, and this is something we, we help our customers with, is making sure that we are leveraging the best path into someone. So if you and I have a shared connection with a prospect, or let's say that you're connected to them and I'm trying to break into that account, it's going to be a much 
better and faster path. And by the way, with better outcomes and higher ASPs and deal cycle times are shorter and all those things. If I ask you to make an introduction to that person, then if I just try to reach out to them directly as a cold outreach, yeah, the more you can make it personal and demonstrate that you've done a little bit of research to understand who they are and what they care about, it automatically separates you from, from 99% of the sellers out there. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you in both those respects. I mean, we're approaching over a billion customer interactions. You guys probably are approaching a trillion customer interactions. I don't even know countless how, how many there are in there. But uh, even for us, like with a billion interactions, we've seen where someone sends an email that uses the word referred and obviously has, has a real genuine referral. It's a 538% higher response rate. So it, it just proves that what's always been true in sales, actually, this is one thing that hasn't changed, which is that the referral is the most powerful way in and it's still hard it's just as hard as it always was right and you have to deliver exceptional value and you have to deliver an exceptional product to be able to get those warm referrals and it can take a little bit more time you know but i i'd be willing to sacrifice a little bit more time for a better shot at getting in the door better quality conversation once you're there and then you know the higher asps and shorter deal cycle times over the long run all day rather than us getting no's left and right because we're coming in coming in cold Somebody once sent me a uh, you know, sales engagement email. Actually, they sent it to my boss and they said, should I be talking to Jeremy? So like, imagine someone sent an email to you know, your boss and said, hey, should I be talking to Alyssa? And then that got forwarded to you. How would you react to that? Is that a positive or a negative approach? Let's see. So if you sent something to our CEO and asked if you should be connected to me. And then, yeah, like my subject line is, should I be talking to Alyssa? Hmm. And and then presumably he would forward it on to me or respond back Correct. to me. Correct. Yes. Which is what happened, by the way, when they sent it to my boss. That's what, exactly what happened. You know, I think it depends on how the recipient feels about it. I, I would, <laughs> I think if my boss thought that I should be engaging, it certainly makes me pay a lot more attention than if, if you were to come to me directly. So I think it's an interesting approach. I mean, I, I think like anything, especially when you're, Getting someone's boss involved, it can always be a little bit of you know murky territory, and it really depends on the sensitivity of the person on the other side. I thought it was novel and unique, and I would have engaged except for one thing, which is they sent the same email to about six other colleagues in my company, and they all six sent it to me. So they showed a degree of patience and discipline with respect to not going to me directly, but the the mistake was they did it all at once. The other way to think about it that, that I am often, this is how deals get done with us sometimes is folks will go to my direct reports because I put so much trust in them to evaluate different tools and solutions that we might want to invest in. And so if my leadership team is excited about something and then a seller comes to me to engage, but they validated it with, with my team, that's actually also a really, in fact, might be a better path in than going to my boss and then straight to me. Yeah, that gets at another huge shift in sales, which was there was a time not too long ago, five, 10 years, where you just went and the senior decision maker, right, would evaluate and decide on their own. I think what you just described has very much become the norm, which is the senior decision maker gets asked, can we have this sort of tool? And the senior decision maker says, yes, sure, I'll budget for that tool. You guys go figure out, and we talked about how everything has been hyper oversaturated and competitive. You guys go figure out which tool we should actually buy, right? 
Exactly. Yes. I mean, this goes back to the the CEB, now Gartner Research, that talks about the number of folks involved in every purchase, B2B purchase decision. And it used to be, I think it was 6.9. I think the latest research, it's it's up close to 10, if not north of 10 people involved. And, and you know, we, we did some, some research ourselves and found that where reps are connected to six or more buyers or influencers within an organization, they see a 34% higher win rate and 10% shorter fuel cycle times, as opposed to just going to one person to try to get a decision made. And that is wildly different than how we used to sell. And as you just described, how the, the landscape has changed. From the multi-billion dollar companies I've worked for down to, you know, the tens of millions of dollar revenue companies I work for, you know, independent of the size, I do think that those, whatever it is, six, seven, eight decision makers all involved is all very, very much true. Chris Orlob, who I, I talk about a lot because I'm a big fan of his work over at Gong, they looked at how many participants were involved on each side of a call, of a demo or a disco or any kind of call. And again, correlation, not causation, but the more participants there were on both sides, the more likely the deal was to close later on. And it stands to reason. You know, you could argue, I guess, that the seller throwing more resources means they think it's a better opportunity and or the buyer putting more people in means it's more likely. But I, I do think there's something to that that early engagement of multiple multiple people across both sides. You know, we used to worry that engaging too many people would potentially decrease the chances of, of a successful outcome because not everyone necessarily is going to be supportive. But I think you're right. I mean, in today's environment, none of us want to make a decision without making sure that our teams are supportive and that this is, you know, that we've really done our due diligence and that we've got all the right people involved. And so today, bringing as many people in as makes sense is such a different motion. But I will tell you that we have incredible visibility into how our customers are using Sales Navigator, and we can marry that with their connection density and relationship density on LinkedIn. And when you start to look at how connected sellers are to their key constituents and buyers, it's been it's so surprising to see how sparse the connections are. So, you know, I, I said six is sort of a magic number where if you've got six connections or more, you're going to have much better outcomes. But most sellers are really only connected to one, one buyer or one decision maker of each company. And I think that as leaders, we assume that they're out you know, building relationships across a, a business. But I think we're in a much more precarious situation than, than we might think we are just because we're more single-threaded rather than multi-threaded. Well, the good news is, right, everyone's always, all sellers are looking to gain a competitive advantage. So I think even just using that knowledge, if you're up against, you know, your competitor and you have managed to gain those six connections and they have not, that's going to really help you be more much likely to win the deal. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that, again, as sellers, it's one of those things that we've all got to invest more time and energy up front in the sales process. One of our top reps did a, a really big deal, probably one of the biggest of his career uh, earlier this year. And he went out and met with probably about 100 folks at this prospective customer. And that's an incredible amount of time and energy to spend. But that was what was required to get a global gigantic deal done. That's just the reality of the world that we're in today. Oh, you just made me think of another thing, which is there's a huge buzz right now, positive buzz around, I think it's a new LinkedIn feature where you can send a, a, a voice message via the platform. I got my first one the other day. Have you guys started to look at any data on the effectiveness of that so far? Yeah, I, I haven't experienced that yet myself. So maybe you're part of the uh, beta group there. 
I guess so. Yeah, I got my first one the other day, and and I I listened to it. I intended to reply to the person simply out of the novelty of it. So far, I don't know that that person was particularly relevant to me, but I, I found it kind of novel and engaging. And I do find it's an incredible way to meet people and develop relationships and so on. So we talked about showing that you know people in the email, but I, the other piece you talked about was to prove some sort of compelling value when you engage people. What do you coach people to, or what do you look for to? not only shows them that they took the time to get to know you, but also is offering you something of value that would make it worth your time to meet with them. Yeah. Well, I mean, it depends what kind of data you as a seller have access to or the kind of perspective, but you know, in whatever area it is that, that you're a seller, you likely are hopefully an expert in your field and you've likely met with many other practitioners and buyers and key executives that give you a sense of the landscape. And so when we talk about adding value, Sometimes it can be specific to the customer. So, you know, as an example, we might be able to see trends, some of the changes happening at your own organization that, that we can tell by demographic information on LinkedIn, as an example, and how that might be a compelling reason for us to connect. It might be that in your conversations with many of their peers, you're hearing some key themes and trends that you can surface and bring to their attention that they may not be aware of. So there are different ways to get at what that particular value is that you can weave into an outreach. What we're talking about is you want to bring something, you know, a piece of information or a piece of data or an insight that elicits a response from, from your buyer that says, gosh, that's interesting. I'd like to learn more. And, uh, you know, and, and that's something that, again, it can take a little bit more energy on the front end to figure out what is that compelling piece of information, but the outcomes are going to be meaningfully different than if it's just a standard outreach. Do you train your sellers to be able to synthesize that data and provide value or, or do you hook them up with other resources inside of LinkedIn who can provide that expert insight? We do. I mean, so we're, we're fortunate, you know, we sell a sales solution to sales leaders, the center of the bullseye there. Uh, so we use our own solution uh, maniacally, as, as you might imagine. We are absolutely, you know, looking for those warm introductions. We're doing a ton of due diligence on the front end to find out who, who our buyers are and what they care about, what they're following, what the, you know, the themes and trends are in the industries that they're involved with. And then we also have built some incredible internal tools that give our reps a, a just great insight into what our customers may care about. And so that's not particularly helpful for a lot of other companies because we've built our proprietary tools there, but th there's a lot. And, and it's really important that we live what we sell. We don't want to be cold outreaching when we're preaching to the entire community of you know sales professionals that they need to be thinking about modern selling differently. Yeah. And, and just, I mean, we're very much cut from the same cloth that our, our sales off brand is all about personalization right. and we definitely have to practice what we preach as well. You talked about these different eras of the way that sales is changing, that that first face-to-face -face era, and then the automation era, and now the personalization era that we're in right now. Maybe it's a, a hard question to attack, but like, what's the fourth wave? It is a hard question. And I don't know the answer, but I'm going to take a stab at this. Uh, and I don't know exactly what the innovation will be, but I think there is an interesting potential future. Today, you know, we talk about the, the sort of bad experiences that we have as buyers. And I wonder if there will be a day when there will be just much more, I won't say public shaming, but where, where sales reps start to build their own persona and profile and reputation, either positive or negative, based on 
the buying and selling experience. And so, you know, I don't know if you think about it as like a Yelp for, for sales reps, but is there a world where that is more incumbent on the individual to create a great experience and that's becomes what buyers expect and how they decide who they're going to engage with? I just think that could be an interesting future state. You see that in the medical profession, right? That now you can find doctor ratings. Mm -hmm. There was a business at one point that started up to try to do ratings of salespeople, but their approach, you know, was just to cherry pick the good ratings. That's not going to fly, right? Because it's too disingenuous. But I could definitely see a world where people could rate their experiences with people. And in some ways, right, even LinkedIn with endorsements and recommendations and referrals. I mean, I've seen that in my own career that you know, as I've progressed and put people into LinkedIn and tried to serve them and that has helped my own career progression. So there's, there's a bit of that in there. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. That's just my, uh, <laughs> if I had a crystal ball, I think there, there could be a world with that. that well, you, you answered that better than me. Someone asked me that they said, what sales going to be like in 50 years? And I just said, I'm going to be dead in 50 years. That's your problem. so uh well Alyssa, it was it was such a pleasure speaking with you thank you so much if people do want to get in touch with you i'm gonna guess what the best way for them to find you is yes your your guess is probably right linkedin would probably be the the best and most efficient path awesome well that's the one for me too so again for listeners you've been uh, listening to the hey sales people podcast we got to learn from an incredible leader today Alyssa merwin who is vice president of the linkedin sales navigator product at linkedin and hope you enjoy the podcast and look forward to talking to you on another episode. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from Salesloft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopento. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thank you for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.